father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right on. We're not going to do the rest. We're not going to do the rest. <laughs> you know this song probably from learning in Sunday school or teaching it in Sunday school about the biblical figure of Abraham. Now, you can do the words differently. Father Abraham had many sons, many kids, or there's a different one that there are seven sons, and it only equals seven if you cut out Ishmael. It doesn't work out real well. Um, but through my short research this week, I've learned that this isn't the original version. Uh, maybe someone should do a PhD on this and report back if I'm wrong. But it goes more like Father Abraham had seven sons, and seven sons had Father Abraham, and they never laughed, ha ha, and they never cried, boo hoo. All they did was go like this, right arm, right arm, and then it keeps going like the rest of the version. And though Father Abraham is a simple song and doesn't involve many lyrics, it does have a nice dance moves going on with it. The original writer, known as Pierre Kartner, born in 1935, a Dutch musician and singer-songwriter who performed under the stage name Vader Abraham. He wrote 1,600 songs, including Father Abraham. He began his career at around eight years old, singing in different competitions and folk festivals. He lived with his family in Amsterdam and worked at a local chocolate factory. Sounds like Willy Wonka, I know. <laughs> Until he joined a band and began to tour around the world. In 1971, he created his stage name and alter ego, Father Abraham. After writing the song, and so he wore a fake beard until he could grow out a real one and put on a bowler hat, and it became his alternate self so much that he had others enmeshed in this idea of who he was that he began to believe it himself, not Pierre, but Abraham. We all might have a bit of an alter ego within us. We may not show it daily or even... Uh, fully understand how it might diminish our true self entirely, so much so that our de decisions and demands of the world could be seen as decided not by Tim, but by, I'm not going to give you my alter ego name. <laughs> I have one, but you won't ever hear it. Whether we have named it or not, or realize it, we have a bit of an alternate self, one we can look at and say, it's not truly me, is it? Or in some cases, all the bad decisions that I decide to make is not of me, but my alter ego. Beyonce has a whole album dedicated to her alter ego. And so, 
Father Abraham had many kids, and many kids had Father Abraham. But I wonder as we look at Genesis 17, what version of Father Abraham are we going to get? And what version does he pass down to his children? This isn't the first time that we receive the covenant or hear about it from God to Abraham. The first time we read about it is Genesis 12. The second time is Genesis 15. That God promises to make a great nation out of Abram. And so that he and those who are descended from his name will be a blessing to all. In chapter 15, God repeats this promise and makes a covenant with Abram, emphasizing that it will be Abram's son who will help replenish, go out into the world, make this great nation, make a name for Abraham. Now, understand covenant here is understood as a formalization of promises that already exist. Existed between a special relationship between God and Abraham. Abraham picking up, moving, and listening, learning, and being led by a really unfamiliar God. And that this blessing will continue with Isaac. And for this mutual agreement to happen, Abraham is asked only to be blameless and walk before God. Now understand that blameless does not mean sinlessness or perfection. It means faithful. Abraham. It's to be faithful for the covenant to happen. Now, in the moments of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Abram seems scared and confused about what the promise actually would be. Uh, he interrupts God, often asking questions before God can get through the entire promise and covenant that is being made. But in 17, there's a totally different personality. As Song Me Park puts it, by this point in the text, the promises that God made earlier seem less incredible. Because in Genesis 17, Abram isn't childless. Because the problem has been remedied by him and Sarai. It explains why he's silent as God goes through this covenant, doesn't interrupt, doesn't seem to be fearful because they've already put a plan in their own hands. So it makes me question when Romans says that Abraham and Sarah never questioned God but was faithful all the way through, we've kind of skipped over some of the pieces. So look at where this passage is situated. Chapter 16 is all about a device planned of Abraham to violate and assault Hagar. All because he and Sarah do not believe the plan for which God has made for them. 
So they put matters into their own hands. And then chapter 18 sandwiches all of this together into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And no matter how much bad theology tells you what Sodom and Gomorrah is about, prophets have reminded us that Sodom and Gomorrah was a sinful nation because it was an inhospitable nation. And the God of the Israelites is all about hospitality and relationship. So what does this sandwich reveal for us? It gives us a picture of the future of the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. From Abraham and Sarah will come children who are just like them, not trusting but always scheming, not believing and but providing ways for themselves even at the hands of another's life. These descendants will look like an inhospitable nation and they will look like people who are hunger for their own morals. They will ingest evil and look back and say, God, it was my alter ego. This is the future of the nation unless they walk blameless before God, faithful before God. And through these narratives of Abraham and Sarah that we get in Genesis, we get this constantly being told to the world, there isn't enough for all of our ways of believing. Surely God has run out of blessing. Surely God has forgotten mine. Scarcity becomes the fear rather than embrace of trust in God's spirit that is enough. We largely operate out of a worldview of scarcity, which leads us to believing that there's actual scarcity, that there's not enough land, not enough health care, not enough water, not enough money, not enough housing for all of us. And the fascinating thing is through all the gospel stories about multiplication, they always tell us there was some left over. To remind us that there will always be more than enough. And so what would it look like if each citizen shared in revealing God's power of the act of enough? Abundance. Would it change how we operate in this world? Would it even change how we compare and criticize one another? In 1988, John Grisham came out with a novel, A Time to Kill. It tells the story of Jake Bergrantz and his infamous client, Carl Lee Haley, set against a backdrop of racially charged Mississippi. This thriller examines themes of inequality, intolerance, and retribution. The story of two white men who abduct and assault a 10-year-old black girl named Tanya Haley. They tried their hardest to kill her, but she survives. Jake Brigant's 32 years old, is a white attorney practicing at a solo firm, losing money day by day. He takes on this 
case. Although his family and friends tell him this will be the death of you. Tensions grow every trial, every moment of the trial. Protesters are outside, clan members are dressed in their garb, and there are fights that break out each and every moment. Grisham, who practiced law for 10 years, does an amazing job of showing the legal system and the scenes that demonstrate accuracy of what happens in a courtroom such as this. But it's the last moment. The courthouse is packed to see the closing remarks, and Jake Brigant asked the jury to close their eyes. If you've seen the movie, you know where I'm going. And as they close their eyes, he describes in slow and painful detail of the assault of each and everything that they did to this child. And his final comment to them is now imagine that this child is white. And eyes open, anger burst out in the courtroom. It's to show the imagery of so much of the racism within the land, within the story, within the time, but also the question of, would this even be a question or, or an act if she was white? It's an amazing book and movie, and it calls our attention to something today. We have said over and over, imagine if they were this. For people to see wrong and inhospitality and evil of their thinking. And through our comparisons, we've constantly created a world and society of scarcity. There can only be one ultimate race. There isn't enough for different genders. There is only enough space for me, my clan, my people, my type of folks. Everybody can't be a pastor. You only need to be this way because of this and this and that. We can't afford education for this group of people, so we'll pass down the books to a lower socioeconomic class. We have created an atmosphere to say there isn't enough for those who are different than us, for those who are not part of our normal understanding of the world. And this mindset leads us to dangerous legislation, corrupt leaders, and children should, who should be home and not dead. Next, Benedict should be home with their family, not assaulted, not bullied, not dead because they were non-binary. And the rhetoric of all the others being told around them that it's not enough room for you because you're not normal. And I hate to say, imagine 
They are straight. Imagine they are white. Imagine if they were all the things that the world would say, would the verdict be the same in the reaction of our world? Yes, I want us to fast from evil and embrace good. I want us to fast from hurt and embrace joy. I want us to fast from death and embrace life. But I also want us to fast from a mindset of scarcity and behold and embrace a lifestyle of a radical trust in God's abundance that there is room, space, life, hope, safety, education, equity for all of us. You know what? We keep doing a good job of proving why there's not enough room in the end for Jesus when he's born. Because we still haven't made room for all that Jesus is asking for us to do. I don't know what this world's trust is in, but mine is in a living God and an ever-evolving faith which reminds us over and over, it's more than enough for all of us. Amen.